We have actually been off for a couple of weeks, but we are officially back. It is March, and the Gentleman's Dojo is live. Welcome back to the Gentleman's Dojo. Gary Cannon flying solo in the captain's seat today because my co-host and good buddy Steve Byrne is back east performing all this weekend at the Pittsburgh Improv. And our fans demanded that we get back on the air, and by fans, I mean my mom, telling us that we need to get back by the way, when Steve does get back finally into the studio, we have a bunch of great stories from the road. We were in Atlanta, we were in Ohio, a bunch of great things. Uh, I may have had an accident in my pants on the elevator going to the show one night, which Steve I know will address. So, little uh, Van Halen. Uh, I, I shared this story with Steve about an accident that I had, and of course Steve had to share it on stage later that night at this club in Ohio. So Steve is actually uh, doing shows in Pittsburgh, which is his hometown. So he's there all this weekend. So if we have any listeners that are in the West Homestead area where the Pittsburgh Improv is, go check Steve out. He will be there Thursday through Saturday with another good buddy of ours who does a great podcast called The Dollop. Uh, Gareth Reynolds will be there. But since I'm flying solo, I wanted to uh, bring in a, uh, a good buddy of mine that I've known for a long, long time, but I haven't seen in a long time. And it's crazy because it's crazy because I haven't seen you in a long time. That's right. Uh, and we actually first started working together. Steve was actually bummed because he wanted to be here for this interview that I was doing with our good buddy uh, Julius Sharp Goldie, who I've known for a long time. How about a hand, everybody, for Goldie? Woo. Let's make a little bit of noise. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited because I told Steve you've known Steve for a long time. Yes. From New York. Yes, doing stand up. He's been more successful than I have. That is not true. Yeah. That is not true. Anybody who listens to this show knows that I rag on Steve's success <laughs> and his sitcom getting canceled. Uh, but you guys meet doing stand-up in New York. What year did you start doing stand-up? Uh, 96. 96? Yeah. Was your thought, because I remember when I started doing stand-up, I started in 98. And when I started, there were a lot of guys that were basically, had they had been doing stand-up for like five years. And I'm like, these guys don't have TV credits? I'm like... How embarrassing. And then, like, you get to that point five, six, seven years later, and you've done nothing, too, and you're like, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I also feel like Steve and I started at maybe the worst possible time because we missed the boom, right? But then we were too early for all this, the internet stuff that you could have used to promote yourself. Sure. So it was like all that could happen was being on a late-night show. But then it was – if you look at the lineup at, like, the Comedy Cellar tonight – and you look at the lineup from 20 years ago, it's 90% of the same people. So oh, there's wow. never been any room to break in in New York. Steve somehow did it. I like, who were the guys that you started with that were in your class back years ago? Uh, like Dimitri Martin, wow. Mike Berbiglia, uh, Steve, Eddie Ift. Um, who else? There's a lot of big ones. Those are the ones that Berbiglia's huge. I mean, a buddy yeah. of mine just saw him in Irvine. He's doing all new material. And sold out every show down there just yeah. absolutely crazy so how long did you stay in new york for before you transition out to la uh so i was doing stand-up for about eight years pretty unsuccessfully i never passed at any club you didn't no i ran my own show at a place called the gershwin hotel um but like i got sort of nowhere with it do you think that you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or can you look back on that time right now and say oh, maybe I wasn't good as those other people I I think the thing that I've come to terms with is people don't 
want to look at me. Okay. They are fine with my comedy <laughs> in the written form. They don't want to stare at me as I say it. <laughs> so that's the best possible explanation. I also think, like, I never found that thing. Uh-huh. You know, like, I never had that... With, you know, Dimitri, you could say the one-liners, and Berbiglia, it was these stories. And it was sort of like I was always stuck between, like, all right, should I just do these jokes? Should I do these bits? Um, do I talk about my life, which at that time wasn't that interesting? Um, and so I would just veer from, like, I'm this wild Jim Carrey-esque character. You don't know what I'm going to do at any second. And then I'd go back to, like, I'm a super laid-back guy doing one-liners who, like, couldn't care less whether you like them or not. And then I'd go, like, I'm a really thoughtful guy. I got a thought a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing these with you. I'm just pouring out my heart. And I just, there was no direction. So, so when you say it was hard for people to look at you, like, in what sense? What do you mean? Well, like, when I look back at old tapes of myself, (laughs) like, I'm so painfully insecure and I need it to work so badly that I think it's hard to watch. And then when I look at my... It tapes myself later than that. I'm going bald, and it's just a <laughs> <laughs> So, right, you couldn't figure out, like, because I remember working with Mitch Fatel for a long time. I'm sure he was around back yes. when you started doing stand-up. He had that hook about, you know, just being the kind of the— Man-child. The man-child, trying to figure out what color panties the girl was wearing. So you really never figured out, like, what your hook was. Yeah, I never discovered my man-child voice. But, but were you—like, did you have a regular day job? Were you making a living doing something? Oh, God, I was not making a living. No, no, no. I was doing um, a lot of first temp office work, and then I taught myself uh, web design by going to Barnes and Noble and reading for dummies books. And this okay. was like during the whole dot com thing, and like offices were looking for any web guy because no one knew how to do this stuff. So I was sort of able to get some work doing IT, which was not super lucrative, but I was doing, like, IT support at law firms in various offices um, for, you know, five or six years. Doing that during the day? Yes. And then going out and doing stand-up at night? Yes, and it was like, it was like Fight Club, like, I would come to work, I had, like, two pairs of pants and three shirts, I would rotate them to give the illusion (laughs) of eight outfits or whatever, and I would have, you know, stayed up all night and, like, be in the same clothes and... Um, but you must have been making a good living doing this web work, right? No, no, no. That didn't pay very much. This is like the theme of my life is just doing the right thing at the exact wrong time. Like <laughs> I was somehow went through the whole dot com thing as a web designer and made zero money. Wow. Like no, I mean I had a, a guy I went to high school with apparently made like thirty million dollars because he was <laughs> one of the first people at some web video thing, and like I literally, you know. I, you know, I was making the twenty thousands, but I was living in New York City. Sure. So, like, I mean, that's nothing. And you have roommates to kind of supplement. Oh my to... God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, right? Yes. Because Steve Byrne was telling me that he had this great place in Hell's Kitchen that he was paying next to nothing for. And you know, back then when he was a single guy doing stand up in New York, he said life was great. I mean, you didn't need to make a lot of money. Like you would have to now if you have a family and kids. So you know, you could live kind of at that poverty level line and still be okay. Well, if Steve's listening to this, life is terrible. Uh, (laughs) For me, at least. I never found that great place. There was one apartment I was like living in someone else's closet and sleeping on a pile of my own dirty clothes because I didn't want to buy a mattress. Um, And then I lived on the Upper West Side and um, 
under really mysterious circumstances where we would pay our rent in cash to the guy who ran the deli downstairs who would wire it to Yemen, where I guess the original owner lived. Okay. So I don't feel good about that now, knowing what we know about world events. Well, it's also interesting, too. You look around New York and you hear, I always feel this way because you and I both lived in Santa Monica at a time, mm-hmm. and I still do. And I always love these people when you drive around and they're like, oh, see that that guy in the top floor building that overlooks the ocean has a 360-degree view? He pays $8 a month. And I'm like, I'm always that guy that, like, moved in last and now paying eight grand to supplement everybody else who's paying a nickel. Yes. So it's I always feel that way about like New York. I'm sure that there's people that have been there for years and years and years paying nothing and then everybody else is paying well, you know, over market rate. When I got out of college, I lived with like five friends in this giant place in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn and the Crown Heights riots had just happened. So this was like half a mile. Oh, no wow. one lived in Brooklyn, right? So we were. I was paying 300 bucks a month. I had my own room and own bathroom. And the living room was so big, you could throw, have a legitimate football game of catch across it. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was giant. It was rundown. But anyway, so the landlord comes to us and she says, you guys have to move out. Someone bought this place. And we're like, oh, well, just out of curiosity, what did, the, what did they pay? And she's like, $150,000. And we were like, what idiot would pay $150,000 to live here. That place has to be worth $4 million. It, it, it was like 5,000 square feet. It was right. across from the Brooklyn Museum. Wow. Yeah. And so easily it's got to be going or selling for just a crazy amount. Yes. So funny. Yeah. And so, but when you're in New York, are you doing a lot of sets at night? Are you still out there grinding, trying to get past at these clubs? Uh, you know, I auditioned at, at the, um, the, the Lucian, the famous uh, comic strip. Do you ever hear about Lucian? Lucian was the sort of gatekeeper okay, sure. of the comic strip. And you would twice a year you could wait outside and get a lottery number. And then, like, you could go up and do five minutes. And then you had to pass this woman, Starla. And it's like, will Starla pass you on to yeah. Lucian? And then you'll audition for Lucian. And right. he passed Eddie Murphy. So he must know. <laughs> he knows comedy. He must be right 100% sure. of the time. So I go. I audition for Lucian. I, he's like, hmm, I don't know. And then he's like, can you come back next week? So I come back next week. You know, I don't know. Can you come back uh, next week? Do five other minutes. <laughs> this happens like six times. So I'm like, okay. I, he's clearly putting me through the ringer, but I'm going to pass. I'm going to be at a club. The sixth time, he kind of looks at me and he goes, hmm, why do I need you when I have John say? <laughs> and it's like we couldn't have been more different, but it was like that was the closest I came to passing. So I was doing like open mics of like – you know, with people like Jen Kirkman, who are now, like, huge comics, like, there, there, there was a whole group of Ophira Eisenberg. Yeah. Um, there was a whole group of people running, like, little mics and stuff that I would just sort of do this little circuit. It's So then when do you decide, when do you make the shift from, hey, I'm done with New York, I want to shift out and move to the West Coast? Well, I got incredibly lucky that I got a writing job with uh, The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, which was just sort of like... A, a crazy circumstance of luck meeting preparation, but I wasn't trying to be a writer. Like, I was still trying to do stand-up and failing at it, and I was like, I am going to go down with a stand-up ship, um, and then I got this writing job. Now, how do you get the job? You're in New York when you get the job? Because yes. obviously, you and I met. I was doing warm-up on The Late Late Show with Craig yes. Kilborn, my very first warm-up gig, which was in 2004. Mm-hmm. So I was that was my first warm-up gig, but... 
How did, were you living in New York when you got the opportunity to yeah. do the Kilborn show? So sort of one of the first people I met doing this open mic in New York called Gladys's Comedy Room, which is in the back of a hamburger restaurant, and they had rats. Um, <laughs> this guy, Alec Sulkin. Now, Alec has since gone on to write for Family Guy. He right. did the Star Wars episode. He wrote Ted and Ted 2. So I was just friends with him, right? And so he got a job like four or five years in us doing stand-up. He got a job. Kilborn moved to L.A., and I talked to him every once in a while. I was still doing open mics, IT, whatever. So my office where I was doing IT was near the World Trade Center. So after okay. 9-11, I was talking to him, and I, I was like, well, boo-hoo, one of the consequences of 9-11 was I, I kind of lost my job. Okay. You know, you couldn't really operate down there at all. And he said, well, you know, if you send jokes to Kilborn, we take freelance jokes, and if we use them, I'll pay you 75 bucks a joke. So at the time, I was getting like maybe 150 bucks in a good week, and I, I would just wake up at 7 a.m., write 30 jokes, and send them. I had nothing else to do. And then Kilborn a couple times was like, hey, I love this joke. Who wrote it? And they're like, oh, some guy who lives in New York. And okay. Because he's Kilborn and he likes to tweak people. He's like, well, apparently this guy knows the show better than anyone here. Maybe Funny. we should hire him. Because so, the show – how many years was the show on at this point? At that point, like, uh, like two or three. Okay. So then eventually like an opening came up because Alec left to go do a sitcom or something. And he said, you really should take a chance on my friend Goldie. So he really set the – so I moved out here. I had never been out here. Never. With a 13-week contract. Wow. And um, I – Got to L.A. and I hadn't driven in like 12 years. So I rented this Kia SUV <laughs> at LAX and I get on the 405 and it's so bright. I pulled into the breakdown lane and started crying because I really? didn't even own sunglasses. And I was so overwhelmed and I like was in New York or something. Like I didn't know anything about here. Like I knew Hit like the subway. People. Sure. Yeah. So and then I've just sort of gone from writing job to writing job, which was not the plan. But. Did you have to submit another writing packet to Kilborn to get that job? Yes. You so, did. And then I, I so overdid it because I was so nervous. Yeah. It was like that could save me from this horrific life I had created for myself um, that I submitted like a 30-page packet, which normally you submit like three pages. Sure. And I was just – I just was like wouldn't stop writing. Do they hire you then just based off that, or do you have to come in for an interview? Then or? I had to do an interview with David Letterman's lawyer just to make sure oh, I wow. wasn't crazy. And it's if someone tells you, like, okay, you have to go meet this person, and all you have to do is not appear crazy, <laughs> it is really hard to not appear crazy because right. you're just like— there's pressure now. Everything you say, you're just yeah. like, that That could be crazy. And then I just, I would like sweat through my shirt. It was a mess, but I somehow passed that. So then they offer you the job right away. Uh, I was in a theater watching The Kid Stays in the Picture. Okay. And my cell phone was, you know, was on because I was like, I might get this call. I might not. And I saw it was a 323 right. area code, and I knew that, like, my life is going to change. It yep. was crazy. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, and then the first time you went out to L.A. for the show was the first time you'd been out to L.A. ever. Yes. Wow. So, <laughs> do you have an apartment lined up out here? What no. Happened? Nothing. I had nothing. I bought a Saab with 234,000 miles on it. I um, moved to Park La Brea, which is sort of like an L.A. rite of passage. Right. Where you don't know what you're doing. And, um, like and that's the, right by CBS. Yeah, and the first day of work, I I was so nervous about because I wasn't a writer. Like I was a stand-up. I, I showed up at 6 a.m. <laughs> and um, just because I was like, I can't have – I don't want to have nothing when we start. And like 
they, you know, they wouldn't let me in. So I was just like laying down on the lawn in front of CBS. And then wow. Mike Gibbons, the head writer, showed sure. up eventually and was like, dude, what are you doing? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And so, so I mean, when you start off and you're doing a 13-week contract, is the money decent enough? Or oh, yeah. No. It's I, a good All gig. of a sudden, I went – the year before I worked for Kilborn, I made $14,000. And then, like, all of a sudden, you're making, like, six figures. Wow. Yeah. But do you feel in that 13 weeks the pressure is on because you want to get this contract renewed? I thought that they would suss out really quickly that I wasn't a writer and that this money would allow me to go back to New York with effectively two years of what my salary had been in the bank. Right. And that that I was essentially would be rich if I could save up $25,000. Wow. And then I would be like, then I could do stand-up and like go do these gigs in Poughkeepsie, New York, where sure. I would – like afterward, after a gig in Poughkeepsie – I almost got gay bashed because I was wearing red pants once. Um, really? Yeah. And um, but you were okay. Like that, you kind of maybe thought that that was the trajectory. Like maybe doing yes. this show, and then because isn't that funny? Like so many comics really think that it, they've been doing comedy for years, and there's times where I'll do Conan or Dr. Ken, and the audience is bad, and I think I'm going to get a call the next day, and you're going to be ratted out for being a fraud. Like that, they're finally yeah. going to figure it out. Like, oh hey, you've been faking it. You know, so you kind of felt that. But I feel that with writing as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, I always feel like I had a stroke or brain injury in my sleep, and there's no way I'm nearly as good as I was like a week ago. Not that I think I was great a week ago, but it's like this show I have coming out now, I don't know whether there'll be a season two or not, but when people have talked about, like, so season two, what are you thinking? It's like, I I don't know. Like I, ha- I have no ideas. Right. I have zero ideas. I don't know. So, so, but within the thirteen weeks, are you getting on air? Because when I met you, when I jumped in in two thousand four to do the warm up, you were doing a lot of on air bits with Kilborn. I don't remember how quickly that happened, but I, I, I imagine like toward it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like Craig saw me and was like, "You're a star. We're putting you on the air." It sort of was like a slow boil of we. He'd call me into his office and. He just sort of found me amusing, and then one day he was like, oh, we should just talk like this on air. And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, sure. And then we did, and then he it was fun for him, you know. And uh, that was great. I mean, that was like some of the most fun I've ever had. What were some of the bits that you did with him? Um, one of the things was they sent me to the NBA All-Star Game in the dunk contest, and I said um, – the first thing I did was I went in the locker room and I pretended to be British and not know anything about basketball. Uh-huh. And I was interviewing these people. And then I said, well, you know, if we're going to judge the dunk contest, I'm going to dress like an actual judge. So I, <laughs> I dressed like a judge and was sitting by the scores. And, and eventually, like, it was on USA Network at the time. They were like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Right, and they just right. kicked me out. And the one thing I, I so regret do, I not doing it was – I was gonna take a shower in the locker room, <laughs> just okay, the, just in just front say, of the in front of the NBA. I was gonna say like, hey, do you mind if I take a shower yeah. right now and do it? And I didn't do it. Are you still though? Like here you are at this NBA game. You're 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 doing this cool thing, and are, are you still kind of pinching yourself? Like, hey, listen, I didn't get very far in New York as a comic. You know, I can't believe that I'm getting to do this. I'm working on a network late night show. Oh yeah, that a ton of people are watching. I mean, that's gotta feel great. Oh, my dream was to be Chris Elliott, and I wouldn't like compare myself to him but I would say that like I got to do a version of what he was doing yeah and that was like enormously 
gratifying. Like, sure. It, and still, if you told me I could do that right now, I would say, like, how? That was – it was so fun and cool. It's funny that that was your first writing gig because that was my first warm-up gig, and I – Always love the fact that I'm going into CBS. Yes. Right below us is The Price is Right. Right after work, I'd always bring people down there. We'd walk around the sets. You could see the big wheel, the Plinko board. I mean, it was like you had full access to absolutely everything. The Young and the Restless was there. And and I'm like, wow, this is my very first gig. And it wasn't a very high-paying warm-up gig. Yeah. I was just happy to be part of the family. And it was just great. I mean, so we both kind of – you yes. share that same experience with the, with the show. Because one of the things was, like, before pre-doing all that IT work, like, when I was 23, I'd been an NBC page, and I was actually the page at SNL for about six or eight months. And that was sort of, like, so frustrating to me because you're so close to what you want to do. But you're basically, like, a wage slave, you know, and I would just be, like, getting sent out to get a latte during a typhoon and stuff. <laughs> right. And then just the fact that I made it across the aisle to do the other thing was such a miracle to me. And something that, like, to this day, I'm still so, like, grateful that I got to do it. Like, most people who get get into comedy, whatever – they don't even get to do it. You know right. what I mean? Like, they don't ever get to do it. Right. So I've gotten to do it. So and, that's And that's cool. still how it just – it is crazy to me too because when I worked at Kilborn and now Conan, like, people are always asking, how do I get on the show? How do I get on the show? And it's like yeah. it, you just realize when you're on the inside how difficult it is. And now you can kind of personalize with the person who's booking the show what a difficult job that is because people yes. are blowing up their ass all day. Yeah, I would say like – my only advice would just be to like just be normal. Like, yeah. Be like a human being and not some weird show business robot. Right. And like people might like you and then they might want to do stuff for you. But like if you come in and people like think if they project confidence or something, that sure. Things will happen. But it just comes off as like terrifying when someone who's like all giant teeth coming at you and like right. wide eyes going like, hey, uh, you know, some rap. Is... And everybody's got that character in terms of, like, let me move the mic stands. You could see me. But, like, it, all that little uh, silly stuff yeah. that just these one-offs. Now, when uh, – and we were talking about this off-air before we jumped on. It's so funny how you find out news about shows in the press before anybody even tells you. Yeah. And I remember finding out that Kilborn was leaving yes. online before it was even mentioned. Yeah. And so – when you, because you were friends with him, I mean, yes. you were, I mean, a lot of people who write on shows aren't that close. They come in, come out, do their job, leave at six, six seven o'clock. Yeah. But you guys were buddies. You guys became yes. really close friends, and still to this day, you guys are really close. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when you found out that he was leaving, did you know that already that he no. was leaving? Well, first, I wouldn't expect him to discuss his career plans with me. Like he has no obligation or run his life plans by me at all. I mean, he did tell me privately after it was over i had already known at that point because it was already out but then he didn't know i knew and he told me but i i didn't you know every year it seemed like his contract would come down to the wire yeah and he would renew and you would go like oh this is just a negotiating ploy of course and sure. like it's something that i would do as well now like you just go why why not use every bit of leverage you have and i think that maybe he was at the time like just more sincere about maybe quitting than any of us right. realized, and then he did it. And it's like, you know, it's kind of cool. Like, he just sort of walked away on his own terms. And we were also talking about before, like, I, now I'm 44. Like, if you told me I could stop and be okay, I would stop. Of right, course. Right this of course. I would walk out mid-podcast if, yeah. like, I looked at my phone and I had 
millions yeah. of dollars all of a sudden. You would leave this show early? Oh, I would just be like you motherfucker. I would <laughs> I would be like at the Burbank Airport <laughs> trying to go to Maui somehow. <laughs> I would take those cupcakes back though, Goldie. Uh or take half of them back. Um so but it's so but what what happens is when he leaves because we talked about this. Yes. You you know people when I always mention that that was the first show that I worked on, people always say to me, "What happened to that guy? Yeah. Where did he go? We saw him in old school. That's what we know him from last. He was in the Shaggy Dog, yeah. and then he came and did another show on Fox. What happened to that guy? But it's it's so funny because you said that you still keep in touch with him. You have dinner yeah. with him all the time, and he's a very happy guy. Oh, super happy, and he does stuff like he's going to be on a. I don't know, episode of Workaholics, and, he, like, if people come to him with stuff that he wants to do, he does it, but I think he doesn't have the compulsion to sort of, like, you know, try to get every little bit of juice he can out of the show business papaya, which is Right. Crazy. I mean, you, you look at guys like Nick Cannon, and I'm like, does that guy ever say no to a gig? Yeah. I mean, like, that guy, I don't, he will be at a, a donut shop opening if it's 100, but, like... It's also hard, like, you look at, like, Tina Fey, like the American Express commercials. Yeah. Like Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon. Like, I'm not going to not, like, maybe they just need money and they have tons of expenses. They employ a ton of people. But you kind of go, like, if I, I I mean, I I just can't imagine if I was in movies and stuff that I would then go, like, I really want to be in a credit card commercial. Right, right. At some level, what is your monthly nut that you're just doing anything and everything to pay for what you need? Yeah. And, like, at that point, just, you know, buy less stuff. Yeah. I mean, it really yeah. is crazy when you see the same people over. You're like, do you ever say no to a gig? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a buddy of mine had a joke about uh, he said, uh, here's my impression of David Arquette answering a phone. And he's like, hello, I'll take it. Like, just yeah. like doesn't care what the hell it is. It just it, it is what it is. Yeah. So Kilborn show ends. Yes. Do you then jump and do some writing for Craig? Ferguson? Yeah, I was the head writer for two weeks and then they, <laughs> two weeks? they canned me pretty <laughs> quickly. It wasn't really a love connection. Was the idea to do it for longer or were, no, was that the hope? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's always the hope to yeah. do whatever job you have for a long time. But it, it just was like, um, I think he viewed me as like a holdover from the old regime. It's like, you know, Trump gets rid of all of Obama's employees. Sure. Like you right. can't, I don't blame him now for doing it i mean at the time it it kind of felt shitty but um you know it makes sense in retrospect and then it's also the show became something that really wasn't to my strong suit at all which was just it was so heavily centered on him that right right you know a completely different show yes same studio different show yeah and it's like you know that's fine like i should have moved on anyway and i did and Um, so right after that happens then you jump to what then I was on a couple Comedy Central shows. One was um, called Weekends at the DL with DL Hughley, mm-hmm. and that lasted about 20 weeks. And then I did a couple seasons of this thing called The Showbiz Show with David Spade. Of course, which was yeah. Like, which was fun. And then um, I met Seth McFarlane, and then my life changed drastically for the better. So and, so how do you meet him? And then, I mean, it's just it's, – it's a great story because yeah. you're essentially like one of his top guys. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so so you, you meet him, and then uh, how does this work? So, again, my buddy Alex Sulkin, who's been sort of my guardian angel, he invites me out to go do karaoke at the Brass Monkey. Okay. Um, Seth McFarlane's there, and he says, hey – Seth is hosting some Canadian video game awards ceremony and needs some jokes. Now, at the time, Seth was not nearly as famous as he is now. Okay. Like, he was just sort of a behind-the-scenes voice actor. And so um, we went to his house to write jokes, and for some reason on that day, I was funnier than I've ever been before or since. And so he just 
had this really positive impression of me. And then at the time, there was a writer's strike at the time, and I had come out of the writer's strike, and I had written this pilot that was sort of like a funny sp- show in space or whatever, and he really responded to it. But I write under a different name. I write under the name Julius Sharp. Everyone knows me as Goldie. Okay. So he went to Alec, and he said, there's two people I want to hire. One is your friend Goldie, and the other is I read the script I like by this guy Julius Sharp, and I want to meet him. And then Sulkin was like, I'm about to blow your mind. Julius Sharp is Goldie. Oh, so wow. That gave him a disproportionately positive impression of me. <laughs> but do you think when you met him and everything was firing on all cylinders, you think the reason that maybe everything came together as well as it did is because you weren't expecting anything? You weren't – like you, you didn't know there was a job out there. You didn't – know like you know what I'm saying? Like you just didn't – Yeah, and I, I also think that like um, he he had been used to hang out in the family guy room and I had come out a late night, and I think, like, you come out of stand-up in late night, and your motor is really high. Like, you're you're producing a lot of material, yeah. you know? And I think that w- when you go to sitcoms, it's more of sitting around, and, and like, we're all going to—ten people are going to pitch on this joke for an hour. Ten people are right. going to pitch. And I think he—what he responded to was the fact that I was like— Okay, like I, I, you know, it was again luck meeting preparation. Like inadvertently, the previous 10, 11, 12 years had sort of been leading this moment where it was like a guy needs jokes. Yep. And it's like I could write jokes in front of people. Like I didn't need to run to a different spot and everything would be really quiet. Like I could just had this a skill that I had developed. Well, it sounds like that's how you got Killborn, too. You were just a great joke writer. Yeah, but I wasn't... I, I don't think I was a great joke writer. I think I was someone who just trained myself sure. a little bit at a time to, like, come up with stuff. And, like, well, you know, like, if you're bombing on stage, like, there's more pressure bombing on stage in front of eight people yeah. than there is writing jokes in front of Seth MacFarlane because it's so personal when you're right. bombing. Like, so, and your material isn't working. Like, that, you'll never feel worse than that, ever. But that that really is the game changer, him saying that he wants you on board for this yeah. project. Oh, yeah. Him saying that, like, then I got a job on the Cleveland show, and then I'm a family guy, and, you know, you know, and then I was a sitcom person all of a sudden. How long did you work on Cleveland show for? Was that Was that the first kind of big, big yeah. Seth gig? Yeah. So that was like two and a half years, and then I moved to Family Guy for another like two and a half or three wow. seasons. Um, and it was great. Like, and when you write the episodes, is it just you or a lot of people contributing to it? I mean, I'm sure it's a collaboration, but do you start out with just kind of the skeleton of it? Yeah. I mean, basically the way it works is the, you break the story in the room, meaning you come up with an act one, act two, act three. Like It's like, you know, Peter's going to open a deli, and then... However that's been. So everyone's together for that part. Then you get sort of an outline together, like the story, the bare bones, and the writer will go off and write like a eight-page outline. Uh, Then you discuss the outline in the room again. Then the writer will go off and write the actual script, and then you'll bring the script in the room and it'll tear it apart again. So it's, it's sort of you're both doing the thing of writing the script, but you're also having your work constantly, like, ripped apart by, like, 15 other people. And how long does it take to put an episode together? Over a year because the animation takes so long. I mean, the actual writing part is, you know, like a two-week process. But then, you know, you see the animation at various stages and you rewrite at uh, at those points as well. How cool is it, though? Like, like, what were some of your favorite 
Cleveland show or family guys that you did that you were 100% wholeheartedly involved in? Um, the I mean, the, the one episode I did where Peter and Quagmire become a folk duo, because <laughs> um, I wrote some songs for that, too, that stayed in in the uh end episode like, okay that was i think that might be the best thing i've ever done um but then there are certain jokes that like come back to you that like i or this one joke that i am really proud of was that it was it involved like stewie being at a kid rock concert and a guy next to him like had a heart attack and then the woman with that guy was like Help, he's having a heart attack. Is anyone here a doctor? And then Stewie just goes, no way any of these fucking people are a doctor. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, for some reason. I. It, it, it just, But isn't it just great? Like, I mean, is it weird that you're waiting a year to see this project that you've worked so hard on for, you know, X amount of time? And now, it, you know, it, it's finally running a year later. It's animated. It's ready to go. Yeah. And it's also like sometimes you've forgotten by the time it comes, what the show was. And other times you remember, like, the table read was great for this, and then you watch the show, and it's not as good. And then sometimes it's the opposite, where you're like, ugh, this one's in trouble. And then sure. it, it's all in the artwork. So it's sort of an interesting alchemical process. Because it's just got to be, like, when you do a sitcom, like a live, you know, four-camera shoot, it's like, you know what's going on pretty quickly. You yes. get the feedback immediately. But with these, I mean, you just don't know until it's done and what the response is. Yes. It's and then crazy. Until it airs, too. And then, you know, there are people, the, the fan base of Family Guy is pretty rabid, and so they'll, they'll let you know. I mean, they'll pick it apart if they, it's, like, one they liked or one they didn't like. So then you work on Cleveland Show, you work on Family Guy. What comes next after those two, like, amazing projects? So then I, I signed an overall deal with Fox. Okay. Um, which, thanks to Seth again. Um, and then they kind of assign you to their shows. So I worked on Christella. Okay. And I worked on The Grinder, which was a great show, but didn't make it. And now I have my own show coming out Sunday. And what's the show called? It's called Making History. Okay. It's a time travel sitcom. Okay, and that starts on Sunday. Tell us more about that show. So basically it's about a guy who um, you don't know in the pilot how he's gotten the time machine, but he's been going back, using the time machine to go back to 1775 and essentially date this woman who he she thinks he's amazing because he's taking credit for everything in popular culture. Like he'll come back and he's like, I wrote you a song and he'll sing her some modern song. <laughs> right. And she thinks he's incredible. Um, but basically by going back and doing that, he comes to realize he's screwed up the American Revolution. And so he then enlists the help of a history professor, professor to come help him fix that. And that's like how the show gets started. Oh, wow. Okay. It, it then becomes a romantic comedy where his colonial girlfriend moves to the present to live with him. And um, the three of them, including the history professor, go and do st time travel stuff for their own benefit. Okay. And then they also make friends with John Hancock and Sam Adams who sort of come to the present at times and stay in the past at times and we shift around a lot. So. And you guys shot nine episodes of nine this? Nine episodes. They're all done. They're done. They're all done. Yes. And uh, what time? It's after The Simpsons. 
Oh, wow. Sunday. So it's Sundays at 8.30 for starting this Sunday. Wow, yeah. what a great time slot to be in on. Yeah. Wow. Hope I don't screw it up. So I, that's got to be – and that was that a single camera show? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So what – now, obviously, you're just going to wait to see what's going on with the ratings and all that sure. stuff. Are you jumping onto something right now or – Well, I've been helping out a little bit on Seth MacFarlane has this show coming out called Orville. Right. It's like a, a space show. So I've been helping out with that. Um, as much as I can and uh, just to keep busy. But, you know, I've got this other show and we'll see, you know. That's funny. I didn't know you were part of the writing team for Christella because yeah. I liked that show. I thought it was really funny. And that was the show uh, Dr. Ken replaced that show yes. Friday nights at ABC, which is a hard time slot to fill. That's yeah. a hard one because Last Man Standing does very well. Shark Tank does really well. So they're always kind of trying to bottle up. Something in the middle there. Yeah. And Friday's just a weird night for TV. Friday's a weird night. It's not yeah. what it used to be. Completely different. I mean, yeah. it just, it's, so it's. It, like you're doing a show for people who have no friends. Right. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just hanging out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what advice, I mean, it's crazy because you have this great story about, you know, leaving New York, so bummed you couldn't get past in any of these clubs, trying yeah. to do this web development job, wasn't working. And then, you know, you start writing these great jokes to submit to you Kilborn's obviously his monologue and then it just boom 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 it just goes from there I mean you know it, is there advice or is it just kind of like you know you did what you needed to do and everything kind of fortunately came together uh you know it's funny I, I did this seminar at BYU of all places oh, yesterday wow. and I sort of got a version of this question and you know the thing is is people always act as though it's this choice between like I can chase my dream doing comedy or I could do this other safe thing. But I'll tell you that, like, the thing that you think is safe might not be that safe. Like, I have right. friends who, like, went into finance thinking that were lawyers, and they wound up unemployed. Now, I have friends who went into comedy who wound up being unbelievably successful and people it failed for. Right. So it's like, no matter what you do, I think you just have to sort of not be an a-hole and alienate people. Of course. Like, that's super important. Right. I think you have to, like, be constantly evaluating, be super honest with yourself. What parts of this are working and what's not working? Because right. it's like I chased the stand-up thing so much longer than I should have when it's like, yes, I want I want to be Chris Rock. Sure. Right. But, like, it wasn't happening. But sure. Then I think I also was smart about, like, people like this writing thing, you know. But then it was like when I was at Ferguson, it clearly wasn't working out. Right. I started staying late and writing sitcom scripts because I w was like, I, I, this clearly is – I'm going to get fired. Like, right. I, I knew. You knew. So I would just say, you know, when you're young and have the energy, if you're going to do it, just right. really chase it with everything you have. Don't be a dick. Try to meet a billion people because you don't know – how your life is going – like now if I look back, it looks like some puzzle that I successfully completed. But at the time, it was all, but it's all it's totally also, random. It's also like you said too, Goldie. You nailed it. You said when the time was right, when you kind of first met Seth and you didn't really know what was going on, you just were ready for that. Because even when I did Conan, when I filled in over there, I had no expectation that yes. the job was going to be more than three days filling in for somebody. Yes. And you go in, you just go have fun just because you think it's going to be a short-term gig. You want to do great, but you're not thinking beyond those three days. Right. And then you go in there and you nail it, having no idea that people are watching behind the scenes. Yeah. And that's what it is. And there's that's also the, the illusion when you're outside that, like, someone's life has worked out. Where it's like, dude, I wanted to quit a billion times. Of course. I have been crying in my car so many times 
it's I, I mean I can't even tell you how right. many times that I have like openly wept in my car from a million uh, way, uh, ways I've been rejected. But it's like I have two guys on my show, um, Neil Casey and John Gemberling. Neil Casey played the villain in Ghostbusters. Oh, sure. John Gemberling's a guy. He's on Broad City. So we cast these guys to play John Hancock and Sam Adams. These were supposed to be a, this a two-line part in the bar. Then these guys um, started like riffing. They were like, hey, do you mind if we improv with this stuff? And we had gotten what we needed to. So I was like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And thinking that like, yeah, sure, I'll cut it. Good. Knock yourselves out. So it wound up being so good. These guys became like recurring series characters oh, wow. because they were so funny. And it, yeah. and, and that to me is like, it, it just taught the lesson of like, when someone, you know, you go to Conan, when someone says, do this one thing, just do it. Take it seriously. Right. Right. You know? And it's so funny. I'm sure now, because you're in a position that you're in, do people just bombard you with like, hey, take a look at this script. If there's any writing jobs that you know about, I mean, do you get that a lot? Not a ton, but it's also, you know, when I do get it, first of all, I, I mean, what I have to tell people is like, I don't staff a lot of things. Like, right. I, I can't control that. I don't have like a list of jobs to get people. And the other thing is like, you know, I don't really like a lot of TV and writing, so I'm the wrong person to ask sure. because if maybe you're awesome at doing what you do and I'm not seeing it, but I can guarantee you I'll read most scripts and go like, I don't know, right. and, and I don't have any good advice for anyone because I, w- I wouldn't say like, I've figured it out and I know all the rules. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's always sort of hard when people ask to do that because I, I don't have anything I can offer them. Right. And I don't think that like, even if I had advice, I can't tell you it's good advice. And also, like, it bums me out to read scripts. Well, then, you know, you, you read a script and then somehow there's this duplication somewhere. And, oh, hey, he stole my idea. You know what I mean? Like, yes. you have to well, be that's the other thing I have to look out about. for, too, is that, like, you know, and, and it's going back to, like, stand-up. So when I started out in New York, Dave Attell was, like, the guy. king, right? So it's like all of a sudden everyone's, like, punching the mic stand down and everyone's right, doing right. a version of a tell and, so, and something I try to do is not watch a lot of comedy not read a lot of comedy because I'm nervous about being part of a like collective voice of people being like funny that like get worms its way into my brain and now I'm just sort of aping what everyone else's sure like, version of what like when everyone was going like I think I just threw up in my mouth a little bit you know what I mean right. or like that thing like two years ago everyone was kind of going wait what Right. You know, like and that was like a trope. And you could see how you you'll see that on shows and stuff. Over and over. Like I, I can't consume a lot of this stuff because right. I, I don't I, I hope at least that what makes some stuff I do stand out a little bit is I, I take a different approach. Right. Well, I got to tell you, we I, I'm so bummed that Steve wasn't here because I know yeah, that yeah. he really wanted to be part of this because he knew you from back in New York. Yeah. But I was like, hey, if he's available to come in today, I'm going to grab him. Well, so, I appreciate it, man. It's I, always great to see you. I got to tell you, so I'm excited about the show. Thank you. Sunday night, 8.30, Making History. Yep. Uh, watch it. And uh, what's your uh, Twitter and all that good it's stuff? It's at Julius Sharp. So Jul- How did the name Goldie come about? Well, basically, my name's Jonathan Goldblatt. My whole life okay. growing up, no one really called me John or Jonathan. Everyone called me Goldblatt or Goldie. And then when I was in New York, um, I was doing an open mic with a friend and I, for some reason I got, I got in a fight with a heckler or something. I got banned from the show (laughs) and I bet my friend, I said, this guy who's running the show is so stupid. I bet you I could come back next week with a different (laughs) name. Wouldn't know. And he wouldn't know. So I did. And I came back and I won the bet. And basically Julius was my dad's name. Okay. And then Sharp, I just thought was cool. But then once I started doing it, I actually 
First of all, no one's excited to go see Jonathan Goldblatt. Like, no one's, <laughs> like, getting off the rest to go do that. But I, it was, there was also, like, something liberating about right. doing it. So I, I don't hide. And then when I got a writing job, I registered that name with the Guild only yeah. because I thought I'd be doing stand-up very quickly again. I didn't think right. I'd be a writer. So, And then it was just too much of a pain to change it. So, so you kept it. Yeah. It's a great I, it's a, it's a little it's catchy. Yeah. Yeah, I like yeah, it. It's a cool name. Well, I'm excited about your show. Thanks, I'm man. so excited for all your success. You were always super nice to me when I worked at Kilbourne, well, which people always remember. Hey, hey, you're a good guy. <laughs> and Roger says hello. I talked to I awesome. Ro- Roger I befriended from that show yeah. and him and I are best buddies. I talked to He's him all the time. Hilarious. He is the best warm-up in the business. He is so great. Yeah. And I just remember one time Roger told me when I had to stall for time at Kilbourne when we were running late. Roger said, never bring people down to the floor. They're going to hurt themselves. And I was like, what does this guy know? He's old man comedy. <laughs> and uh, I remember I did, and somebody hurt their knee or their <laughs> leg, and they were on the stage in pain. They're like, can we see a medic? And I was like, and then I was like to Roger, I was like, I'm so sorry that I even had the balls to question, you know, what you know. It was so funny. He's like, don't do it. I'm telling you not to do it. I'm like, this guy, I'm, I'm new school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the guy hurt himself. I was like, I'm fucked. <laughs> so it was just great. So Julia Sharp, Goldie, don't forget to watch his show. Uh, Sunday nights, 8.30, Making History. Thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate it. And uh, I wish Steve was here, but we'll have you back if you would come back and join us. Would That'd love be awesome. To. Uh, that is it for the Gentleman's Dojo. Thank you guys for listening. Sorry for the long break. Um, but we are officially back and rocking and rolling here at All Things Comedy. Thanks to Bill Burr and Al Madrigal for having this great studio and putting us up here. Until next time, I've been Gary Cannon. Bye-bye. <laughs>